This episode of Astorium is brought to you by Blueberry. Not the fruit, the podcast hosting service. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, now is the time, and Blueberry is what you should be using to host that podcast. Blueberry is the gold standard for podcast hosting and provides accurate stats, your own WordPress website, and an easy-to-use format for you to get your podcast out into the world. And right now, you can get your first month free. That's right, free. All you have to do is go to orbitaljigsaw.com history. That's orbitaljigsaw.com history. And start your journey into podcasting right. Auschwitz-Birkenau, October 1944. By now, they could barely walk, but they had to, for if they fell over on duty, they would be shot and dragged off to a crematorium. These men had seen horrors beyond imagining. Nearly everyone they had ever known in this horrific camp was dead or nearly dead. Many of these prisoners worked in the crematorium, transporting the ashes of thousands upon thousands of Jews out of the furnaces. However, a group of these imprisoned workers found out that they were scheduled to be killed the next day, and that was enough for them. The men, some barely able to walk from malnourishment and exhaustion, all ran at the German guards in a last-ditch attempt to overwhelm them. The guards unloaded their submachine guns into the desperate men charging them, horrified when their clips ran dry. The revolt spread quickly to different parts of the camp. One group of prisoners made a break for the forest. A scraggly man picked up a dead Nazi submachine gun and began firing back at the SS guards that were now surrounding them. During this revolt, a few prisoners got to enjoy the incredible irony of tossing a live Nazi guard into a furnace and then watch him be incinerated. I don't want to comment on the excruciating pain the Nazi guard must have felt during his death, but I hope we can agree that a glimmer of justice was served in that moment. I bring up this revolt in the Auschwitz extermination camp to show that the victims of Nazi Germany did not go gently into that good night. They resisted, they rebelled, they fought against all odds. We often view the victims of Hitler's horrific ideals as mere lambs to the slaughter. They were absolutely not. This episode, I want to talk about the resistance to the Nazi regime, not from the victims, but from high-ranking men within Germany's own military. I'm Jake Barton, welcome to Historium. Episode 40, Operation Valkyrie. During the 1930s and early 1940s, with incredible German efficiency, Hitler's regime had rooted out and imprisoned or killed any dissenters to the new totalitarian Third Reich. However, he didn't get them all. Over the course of World War II, an unlikely group of men and women formed the Kreisau Circle. This very secretive group met in a rural estate in Germany. It was an unlikely combination of conservative politicians, socialists, old aristocrats, Christians, and old-school German nationalists. Despite the variety of backgrounds and viewpoints, they were all disgusted by the concentration camps and the authoritarian fervor that enraptured the German people. These men and women met throughout the war to plan out the reorganization of the German government after the Nazis inevitably lost this war. 
the Kreisel Circle itself didn't promote violence against the Nazis until a man named Klaus von Stauffenberg joined their ranks. Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg, barrel-chested and broad-shouldered, with a dark, handsome complexion, had been an officer in the German military for quite some time. He served in a panzer division in North Africa under Erwin Rommel, popularly known as the Desert Fox. In April of 1943, an attack by the Royal Australian Air Force caught Stauffenberg's unit off guard. Stauffenberg was hit by several bullets from a strafing P-40 fighter plane and was mere inches from death. Suffering from extreme injuries, he was taken to a field hospital and then transferred back to Germany. The Axis forces surrendered in North Africa the next month. Colonel Stauffenberg spent three months recovering from his extensive injuries. He lost his left eye, his right hand, and two fingers on his left hand. By the time he recovered, Allied forces had landed on the Italian peninsula and were gaining ground. To the east, Germany had lost to the Red Army at Stalingrad. Now more and more German officers began hearing about the horrors of the concentration camps. Stauffenberg decided that he could serve Hitler or he could serve Germany, but not both. He decided to accept the discreet invitation to join the Kreisau Circle in September of 1943. On a beautiful fall afternoon in the living room of a large estate in southern Germany, Colonel Stauffenberg, now sporting a small black eye patch, presented his plan to the other members of the Kreisau Circle. The plan relied on an obscure contingency plan called Operation Valkyrie. German soldiers, upon their enlistment, swear an oath of allegiance not to Germany, but to the Fuhrer. If Hitler were to become ill, indisposed, or dead, the German reserve army in Berlin would be mobilized to keep the peace. Amongst the conspirators in the living room was a skinny, balding man with large, clear-rimmed glasses. His name was General Friedrich Ulbricht, who had authority over the Territorial Reserve Army if Operation Valkyrie were to go into effect. However, in order for Operation Valkyrie to be carried out, Hitler had to die. Since the soldiers swore an oath to Hitler himself, the plan could not work otherwise. The Kreisau Circle had been generally opposed to violence, but after hours of argument and heated debate that lasted well into the night, the Kreisau Circle agreed. Killing Hitler and initiating Operation Valkyrie was their only chance at saving Germany before it was too late. The plan was set into motion. Colonel Stauffenberg was now fully recovered and transferred to a desk job at the Bendler Block, a military administrative building in Berlin. He worked under General Ulbricht. The first and most essential part of the plan was making necessary changes to the specifics of Operation Valkyrie to allow for a more rapid transition of authority to the reserve army. However, there was only one problem. The only person who could authorize changes made to Operation Valkyrie was Adolf Hitler. One of the other conspirators, Henning von Treskow, made the necessary alterations to Operation Valkyrie. He then reported to the Eagle's Nest, Hitler's mountaintop getaway in the Alps, trying desperately to hide his nervousness. Upon arriving, Hitler was enjoying some wine with the highest ranking members of the Nazi party. General Treskow entered and did his best to get Hitler to sign the revised Operation Valkyrie. Despite dampening the mood by presenting the Fuhrer with a revised plan in the event of his untimely demise, 
Hitler signed off for the alterations to the plan. As General Treskow left the summit, he finally took a breath of relief. The relief quickly turned to anxiety, as the general found out he was being reassigned to the front. The next part of the plan involved convincing General Friedrich Fromm, the commander-in-chief of the reserve army. He would be the final conspirator necessary to go forward with their plan, in a bold move that could cost them the entire plot both Colonel Stauffenberg and General Ulbricht entered General Fromm's office. Fromm was a grumpy, stubborn man with a hot-headed reputation, so the pair of conspirators chose their words very carefully. They subtly laid out a hypothetical scenario where Operation Valkyrie would take place, putting General Fromm in control of a large portion of the entire German military. General Fromm understood what they were implying, and stared blankly at Stauffenberg and Ulbricht as the seconds ticked by. Finally, General Fromm asked if they realized that they were currently committing high treason against the Fuhrer. He chewed the pair out for several minutes, then told them to leave his office and not to speak of this ever again. Terrified, Stauffenberg and Ulbricht left. The next few days were spent in constant fear of being dragged away by the Gestapo, they had seen it happen countless times. But the Gestapo never came. General Fromm joined the ranks of hundreds of officers in the German military who knew bits and pieces about a possible coup, but said nothing. Better to wait, they thought, and join whichever side came up on top in the end. Ulbricht began making minor revisions to Operation Valkyrie to have the option to bypass General Fromm if need be. On June 6, 1944, the Allied forces conducted the largest amphibious assault in history, creating a beachhead into mainland Europe in Normandy. Stauffenberg and the other conspirators knew they were running out of time. Stauffenberg was now chief of staff of the reserve army, and now had occasional access to Hitler himself during certain military meetings. Several other conspirators had been assigned to kill Hitler in the past few months, but between having to leave weapons at the door, to unscheduled meetings, or to just general cowardice, all of them had failed. Stauffenberg realized that he had to do the deed himself, and that it would not be easy. Hitler's paranoia had grown in the recent months. He allowed no one to carry firearms anywhere near him, and avoided travel by air. Simply shooting him or sabotaging his aircraft were no longer options. The conspirators opted for a bomb. With the assistance of an expert explosives technician, Colonel Stauffenberg carried a specially made briefcase that contained two bombs, armed by squeezing pliers onto a tube creating a slow-acting chemical reaction that would trigger the plastic explosive inside. The plot was now fully prepared. All they needed now was the right opportunity. On July 15, 1944, Colonel Stauffenberg was invited to a staff meeting at one of the Fuhrer's headquarters called the Wolf's Lair. Adolf Hitler, Heinrich Himmler, and Hermann Göring, the highest-ranking leadership in the Nazi party, would all be in attendance. That morning, Stauffenberg arrived with his briefcase bomb in tow. The plan was this. Enter the underground bunker where the meeting was being held, and grab a seat nearest to Hitler. Once the meeting began, Stauffenberg would excuse himself to use the restroom, where he would then arm the bomb. He would then return to the meeting with the armed bomb in the briefcase. After a few minutes, 
he would receive a phone call from one of the other conspirators and then leave the bunker to take that call. At this point, the bomb would go off, killing all of the Nazi leadership. The conspirators back in Berlin would then initiate Operation Valkyrie, blaming Hitler's death on the SS and taking control of the military via the reserve army in the capital. All Waffen-SS and prominent Nazis would be rapidly arrested. An emergency government would then be set up to begin peace talks with the Allied forces that were currently closing in on all sides. That was the entire plan, and Colonel Stauffenberg must have gone over it thousands of times. His mind must have raced with the possibilities as he entered the bunker. His heart pounding as he sat near Hitler, Himmler, and Goring. They were so close, so close to saving Germany from total ruin. Stauffenberg excused himself to use the restroom where he would arm the bomb. As he went for his briefcase, he noticed it had been moved. He did his best to not panic, but turned to see Hitler and Goring heading right for him. It turns out Hitler had been called out of the room for a more important phone call. The meeting had been called off. Stauffenberg quickly located his briefcase, but was still worried that someone had seen the bomb inside. The conference was delayed until July 20th. For the next few days, Stauffenberg and the other plotters were terrified that someone had seen the bomb and that the Gestapo would kick down their doors at any moment. As they awaited their next opportunity, Stauffenberg told Treskow and Ulbricht that this would be their last chance. Hitler had to be killed, and Operation Valkyrie had to succeed. Stauffenberg arrived at the Wolf's Lair once again, around noon on July 20th, ready to commit high treason for the greater good of Germany. But as the old military saying goes, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. The first issue arose when Stauffenberg was ushered into a conference hut above ground, being told the conference was to take place there instead of the bunker that he expected. Additionally, Heinrich Himmler and Hermann Göring were not present. Only the Fuhrer was in attendance. Despite these issues, Stauffenberg decided it was now or never. As the meeting was beginning and he had his spot near Hitler, the colonel excused himself to use the restroom. Inside, he quickly began the process of arming the two bombs in the briefcase. However, a guard incessantly knocked on the door saying that the meeting was beginning and that his presence was required. Stauffenberg, who, remember, only has three fingers total, struggled with the pliers used to arm the bomb. With the guard continuing to tell him the meeting was beginning and starting to get suspicious, Stauffenberg closed the briefcase after arming just one of the two bombs. He then left the restroom and returned to the meeting. He quietly sat down as a general was giving a report to Hitler about the conditions on the Eastern Front. Hitler did not look pleased. Stauffenberg carefully set the briefcase down next to him, on the side facing Hitler. The minutes ticked by. Stauffenberg tried to look as calm as possible, but thoughts must have raced through his head, knowing that the bomb going off was just the beginning. He desperately waited for his excuse to leave, until it finally arrived in the form of an undersecretary whispering to him that he had an urgent call. Stauffenberg excused himself and left the meeting room. He walked over to a vehicle and began making arrangements to leave the airfield. As he was entering the vehicle, 
A massive explosion ripped apart the building behind him. It had worked. As Nazi officers with tattered and bloody clothes emerged from the smoke, Stauffenberg quickly entered a car and headed for the airfield. Upon seeing the explosion, a fellow conspirator at the Wolf's Lair disabled all outgoing communications. Colonel Stauffenberg had to get through three separate checkpoints, but with some clever lies, he made it through. He boarded an airplane heading to Berlin. He was one anxious three-hour plane ride away from the capital. In the capital, General Ulbricht moved fast in initiating Operation Valkyrie and activating the Reserve Army. A dozen or so commanders of the Reserve Army received this telegraph from General Ulbricht that read, quote, The Fuhrer Adolf Hitler is dead. An unscrupulous clique of party leaders alien to the front has attempted, under the exploitation of this situation, to betray the hard-struggling front and to seize power for their own selfish purposes. In this hour of greatest danger, the government of the Reich has declared a state of military emergency for the maintenance of law and order, and at the same time has transferred the executive power with the supreme command of the Wehrmacht to me." Unquote. The order then explained the details of how the Waffen-SS was to be disbanded and joined into the regular military branch, now under Ulbricht's control. Extremely young German soldiers of the Reserve Army began suiting up for the newly declared military emergency. Berlin plunged into chaos. General Fromm, who had been aware of the plot against Hitler but hadn't picked a side, was flabbergasted. He was taken at gunpoint and tied up in a storage room of the Bendler block. All across the capital, the Reserve Army, with the assistance of the Capitol Police, began arresting Nazi officers and politicians. SS officers were forced to turn in their weapons and surrender. Hundreds of men wearing red armbands emblazoned with the Nazi insignia were paraded out of the Bendler block and other German military offices. At this point, Stauffenberg arrived in Berlin and witnessed the chaos. Operation Valkyrie had been put into effect, and it was working. Stauffenberg rushed into the Bendler block, passing several Nazis, all yelling and asking what was going on as the Reserve Army and the Berlin police ushered them out at gunpoint. Once inside the Bendler block, Stauffenberg saw an office purged of Nazis, with the conspirators now completely in charge. Everyone was frantically trying to quash resistance and arrest as many members of the Nazi leadership as possible. Many were on the phone announcing that the SS had betrayed their country by killing Hitler and explaining why an emergency government had to be put into place. Berlin was soon under lockdown. Ulbricht knew that in order for the plan to succeed, they had to capture the high-ranking members of the Nazi leadership. On the top of that list was Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels. Ulbricht ordered the leader of the Reserve Army, Major Otto Rimmer, to arrest Goebbels in his office in Berlin. Major Otto Rimmer entered the propaganda minister's office and told him that he was under arrest. Goebbels asked who had given the order. Rimmer responded by saying that the Fuhrer was dead, killed by SS conspirators. Joseph Goebbels made a phone call and handed the phone to Rimmer. On the other line was Adolf Hitler, shaken up with a burst eardrum, but alive. Major Rimmer realized that he had been following the orders of the mutineers 
With fury in his voice, Hitler told him to release all of the captured Nazis, end this coup, and take the plotters alive. Hitler survived the assassination attempt because of several factors. Firstly, the above-ground meeting room in the conference hut was much more open and had a window. Had the meeting taken place in the underground bunker, as was originally expected, the contained blast would have killed everyone in the room instantly. Also, when Stauffenberg left the room, he left his briefcase on the ground facing Hitler. When an officer by the name of Heinz Brandt leaned in to get a better look at the map, he accidentally bumped into the briefcase. After doing so, he nudged the briefcase behind a leg of the heavy wooden table with his foot. This alone saved Hitler's life. The table leg shielded Hitler from the bulk of the blast, which killed three nearby officers and a stenographer. Twenty others were injured in the explosion. As communications with the wolf's lair were restored, more and more people found out that the Fuhrer had survived. Many communications officers began receiving conflicting orders. At this time, General Ulbricht and Colonel Stauffenberg struggled to control the madness. They were planning a radio broadcast to tell the public that Hitler had been killed by the SS and Berlin was undergoing an emergency military transition. However, the general responsible for making the proclamation over the radio never showed up. Around this time, a general in the Bindler block offices began shouting that Hitler wasn't dead. Several of the plotters apprehended him and placed him in the storage room with General Fromm. As the sun began to set, the commander of the Berlin troops, who had talked to Hitler in Goebbels' office, effectively spread the word that Hitler was in fact alive, and that the officers currently inhabiting the Bendler block were traitors. Troops from the reserve army were ordered to free the Nazi officers and now began to surround the military district. The conspirators who had initiated Operation Valkyrie began to feel the walls closing in around them. At this point, several officers on the inside switched allegiances, trying to save their own skin. A firefight broke out in the offices. Bullets whizzed through the hallways and meeting rooms. Officers supporting and opposing the coup exchanged gunfire as secretaries and civilians hid behind desks. Stauffenberg was shot in the shoulder. As the reserve army began entering the building, the conspirators began surrendering, one by one. General Fromm was freed and resumed command. In an attempt to save his own skin for having prior knowledge about the coup but saying nothing, he brought all of the surviving plotters into a room. He condemned the plotters of high treason and conspiracy and sentenced them to an immediate death by firing squad. The French resistance in occupied Paris canceled their planned uprising as they learned that Hitler had survived. Conspirators carrying out Operation Valkyrie around Germany all slowly came to the same realization that their attempt had gotten so close but had failed. Some tried to escape Germany, others surrendered to the Nazis, accepting their fate of certain death. There were many suicides among the plotters, including one of the main conspirators, Henning von Treskow, who was currently serving on the Western Front. His final words were, Quote, the whole world will vilify us now, but I am still totally convinced that we did the right thing. Hitler is the arch enemy not only of Germany, but of the world. When, 
in a few hours' time, I go before God to account for what I have done and left undone. I know I will be able to justify what I did in the struggle against Hitler. God promised Abraham that he would not destroy Sodom if only ten righteous men could be found in the city. And so I hope, for our sake, God will not destroy Germany. No one among us can complain about dying, for whoever joined our ranks put on the poison shirt of Nessus. A man's moral worth is established only at the point where he is ready to give his life in the defense of his convictions." Unquote. Treskow then walked out to no man's land, pulled the pin of a grenade, and held it to his head. Back in Berlin, around midnight, General Ulbricht, Colonel Stauffenberg, and a few other high-ranking conspirators were taken into the courtyard outside the Bendlerblock building. In the courtyard, under the headlights of several running vehicles, they were shot one by one. Klaus von Stauffenberg's last words were, Long live sacred Germany. Over the following weeks, Himmler's Gestapo, driven by a furious Hitler, rounded up nearly everyone who had even the remotest connection with the plot. The discovery of letters and diaries in the homes and offices of those arrested revealed the previous plots, and this led to further rounds of arrest. Under Himmler's new blood-guilt laws, all of the relatives of the plotters were also arrested. It eventually came out that General Fromm had known about the coup, but had said nothing. He was executed in early 1945. All in all, 20,000 Germans were arrested, killed, or put in concentration camps because of their participation or knowledge of the conspiracy, or if they were related to anyone who had. Hitler took his survival of the assassination attempt to be yet another divine moment in history, ordaining him as the Fuhrer. However, he became even more paranoid and gave the order to force every single German soldier to re-swear their oath of allegiance to him. The Allied powers soon found out about the July 20th plot and the attempt to carry out Operation Valkyrie. However, they didn't make it widely known. At this point, the Allies were liberating several concentration camps, and it was hard to celebrate anyone who had participated in the cruel regime for this long. Also, they had to paint the Germans in the worst possible light for obvious propaganda purposes. They did still have a war to win, after all. The July 20th plot was the last of 15 known attempts to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Nine months later, Hitler committed suicide as the Red Army surrounded Berlin. The failure of the July 20th plot and Operation Valkyrie has begged the question, what would have happened if they had succeeded? Had Stauffenberg been able to prime both bombs, or had the meeting taken place in the underground bunker, or if the briefcase was not moved behind the table leg, Hitler would have been killed. Carrying out Operation Valkyrie would have been a great deal harder, as many members of the Nazi leadership would still be alive. But if they managed it, then a whole new regime would have seized power. This government would have immediately opened peace talks with the Allies. Millions of lives could have been saved. The modern world would look quite different. Stauffenberg's wife miraculously survived the war and died in 2006, long enough for her to see the perception of her late husband turn from a traitorous villain 
to a brave resistance fighter. He served as proof that the Germans did not sit idly by. They resisted, they rebelled, and many paid the ultimate price. In the 1980s, the German government created a memorial in the courtyard where Stauffenberg and the others had been executed, outside the Bindler block. The memorial includes a statue, hands bound, staring defiantly towards where the executioners once stood. The plaque below the statue reads, You did not bear the shame. You resisted and sacrificed your life for freedom, justice, and honor. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. You can follow Historium on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd like to support Historium, the best place to do so is through Patreon. I've made some changes to the reward tiers, and I think you'll like them. To check those out, go to patreon.com historium, or search Historium on the Patreon app. If you have any questions, you can email me at historiumpodcast.com at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening.